Let, let's pray and ask the Lord to, to give us His Spirit and His help as we consider uh, His Word together by, by means or, or by, via the road of, of our confession of faith. Our God and our Father, we are grateful that you've made yourself known to us. We thank you for the promise that our Savior gave to his, to his apostles and to us, that after his departure, the Helper would come and would lead us into all truth. And we are grateful, Holy Spirit, for your work in every succeeding generation of the church of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, helping, helping your people to discern uh, what your word teaches, to be able to articulate that in plain language. I, give, I pray that you would help us uh, to grow together in our understanding of the very word of life. Uh, we, have, we have the great treasure, the great deposit that you've given to us. It's, it's in writing for our benefit and for our study. We pray that you would make us wise, give us discernment, uh, give us the help that we need to understand your word as it ought to be understood, as it has been transmitted to us by, by the apostles, repeated by our fathers in the faith, and we pray that it would be received faithfully in this generation and transmitted accurately and fully to the generation that would come. We ask this in the name of Christ and for the glory of his kingdom. Amen. In the year 325 A.D., at the Council of Nicaea, the issue that was before this church council was Arianism, what came to be known as Arianism. It wasn't yet known by that name. But they were dealing with a, an alleged heretic by the name of Arius. And Arius denied the eternal deity of Christ. He wasn't the first to do that, but in many ways he was the most influential. And, and even to this day, the term Arianism... Is, is ought to immediately arise in our minds a sense of, of a threat to the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Listen to historian Samuel Miller. He's writing in the 1800s, and he's writing about this event. And I, and I, I liked the, the way that he's articulated this. Is, this is a longer quote than I would normally read at one time, but his, his writing, I think, is engaging enough that we can, we can bear with a little bit longer quote. quote. When the council entered on the examination of the subject, it was found extremely difficult to obtain from Arius any satisfactory explanation of his views. He was not only as ready as the most orthodox divine present to profess that he believed the Bible, but he also declared himself willing to adopt as his own all the language of scriptures in detail concerning the person and character of the blessed Redeemer. But when the members of the council wished to ascertain in what sense he understood this language, he discovered a disposition to evade and equivocate, and actually, for a considerable time, baffled the attempts of the most ingenious of the Orthodox to specify his errors and to bring them to light. He declared that he was perfectly willing to employ the popular language on the subject in controversy and wished to have it believed that he differed very little from the body of the church. Accordingly, the Orthodox went over the various titles of Christ plainly expressive of divinity, such as God, the true God, the express image of God, etc., to every one of which Arius and his followers most readily subscribed, claiming a right, however, to put their own construction on the scriptural titles in question. 
after employing much time and ingenuity in vain, in endeavoring to drag this artful thief from his lurking places and to obtain from him an explanation of his views, the council found it would be impossible to accomplish their object as long as they permitted him to entrench himself behind a mere general profession of belief in the Bible. They therefore did what common sense, as well as the word of God, had taught the church to do in all preceding times, and what alone can enable her to detect the artful advocate of error. They expressed in their own language what they supposed to be the doctrine of Scripture concerning the divinity of the Savior. In other words, they drew up a confession of faith on the subject. When they called upon Arius and his disciples to subscribe, and then they called upon Arius and his disciples to subscribe this, the heretics refused and were thus virtually brought to the acknowledgement that they did not understand the scriptures as the rest of the council understood them, and, of course, that the charge of heresy against them was correct. I think that's a very good way to describe one particular historical event, but I, I propose to you that same event has happened repeatedly throughout scriptures in ways both big and small. Arius was obviously a large figure, and, and in some ways continues to be a large figure, his various forms of Arianism still inhabit uh, the, the false cults of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, Oneness Pentecostalism, and others. So it is without dispute that creeds and confessions of faith have been normative throughout Christian history until relatively recently. And when I say relatively recently, uh, really within the last less than 200 years. Uh, prior to that, almost all organized churches, denominations, had very clear and even somewhat comprehensive confessions of faith. So what I want to look at today is the question, why do we have a confession of faith? Why confessions of faith? As we're working through, we're leading up to our, our study in the confession itself and looking at the language, particularly in our first six chapters, what I'm calling the foundational principles of our faith. But before we do that, I want to wrestle with the, the question of why have a confession? Why, why have this at all? Uh, why not just teach the Bible and, and say that we, we have no, as some would say, no creed but the Bible? Or no creed but Christ? How do we think about those assertions? How do we think about this? What has happened? Why have confessions seemingly fallen out of favor? And then I want to propose a, a few more questions to you to, to ponder, some of which I'll attempt to answer this morning. Others uh, I want just for you to think about and to consider. What is our culture's bent with respect to tradition and especially confessions of faith? Is there a cultural bias one way or another? Is there, are there sort of cultural headwinds in favor of confessions and traditions and history, or are there, are there headwinds against those things? I will answer that one today. Does subscribing to a confession of faith indicate some, some measure of doubt in the sufficiency of Scripture? If we subscribe to a confession of faith and insist upon adhering to it, are we implicitly 
saying that there's some measure of insufficiency, there's some defect in the Bible itself. Is that a logical conclusion? Is that a fair conclusion? Is that a reasonable conclusion? And then, of course, is, is having a confession of faith, is insisting that a church ought to have a confession of faith, is that proposition consistent with Scripture or inconsistent with Scripture? Is there anything in the Scriptures themselves that would lend us in the direction of a confession of faith or would lead us away from having a confession of faith? So those are, those are some of the questions I want to think about. And then one more, what are some of the benefits of a church using a confession of faith? So some of these answers, you've probably already imagined how I'm going to answer them because you're, you're here knowing that we hold to a, a confession of faith. We subscribe a confession of faith. But I want to think in, in, three, in three ways this morning. Um, and then next week, I hope to start looking at the, the, the big picture outline of how the chapters in our confession are put together and, and some interpretive guidelines. You know, before we approach the, any document, whether it's the scriptures or our U.S. Constitution or uh, you know, even a, a corporate articles of incorporation, or a confession of faith. We need to have some interpretive principles. There need to be something that guides us. In, uh, the, with respect to our U.S. Constitution, there's a historical context. There were legal principles, philosophical principles, that have to be understood so that we can rightly interpret the document. Uh, if we were going to read uh, corporate bylaws for a, a corporation based in the United States, we would need to understand what are the corporate laws, what, what, what are the ins and outs of corporate law and financial law and so forth in order to rightly interpret that document. And so too with a confession, there are interpretive principles that we need to understand. Last week we looked at some of the historical background, which will also help guide us, but there are some, some interpretive things. So that will be next week. Today we're looking primarily at three questions or three issues, the cultural case against confession. So I raised the question, are there headwinds against confessions or with confessions? I'm going to answer it there against. Our cultural headwinds is, is fundamentally against confessions of faith. But I, want to, I want to unpack that a little bit and, and identify some, some particular cultural circumstances that may predispose us, uh, and I'm going to use us in, in the broadest sense, uh, particularly those of us in the West, against confessions of faith. And I think it's, on, it's, it's helpful to be honest about our, our presuppositions, because even if we reject them, we, it's helpful to realize we may still be more influenced by them than we realize. Secondly, I want to look at the scriptural case for confessions. I think the scriptures themselves commend to us the process of writing down what we believe. I'm not the only one to think that, by the way. <clears throat> and thirdly, we'll consider, in a very brief sense, some of the benefits. What are some of the benefits to us as a local church for subscribing to and holding fast to a confession of faith? With respect to some of the cultural cases, the, some of the cultural implications against confession, confessions, something uh, substantial has happened. R.C. Sproul famously said that ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. Philosophical ideas have, can, can have significant philosophical uh, downstream consequences. Uh, James Fesco is a, a, a Presbyterian uh, scholar, uh, Bible teacher, uh, professor at RTS, 
Reformed Theological Seminary, actually quotes extensively. He has a little book uh, entitled The Case for Creeds and Confessions. And he, he quotes extensively from Ralph Waldo Emerson, of all people, and, and points particularly to a couple of university addresses that he gave in the mid to early 19th century. And, and putting skin on Enlightenment philosophies that, be, that undermined and questioned any kind of centralized authority or any reliance upon history and tradition at all. One of the principles of the Enlightenment was the exaltation of the individual self. Of course, we see that enshrined in the, our Declaration of Independence and other historical documents. It's not that it was all wicked, but with respect to theology, it's probably better inter- understood as the endarkenment, not the Enlightenment. And post-Enlightenment, things like individualism and populism became prominent in, in our cultural thinking rather than community. And so then we end up being anachronistic, meaning we read those individualistic ideas back into the scriptures when almost no one prior to the 19, early 19th century would have read the scriptures in those ways. They would have read it in the context of a community of faith. And I'll give you one example. In, in Luke's um, second gospel, the book of Acts, and we see Paul, who was driven out of Thessalonica. He, there was a riot. He was driven out of Thessalonica violently. And he comes to Berea. And Luke comments that as Paul does what he always does, he goes to the, to the Jewish synagogue and he preaches. And he says there, the Bereans were more noble than the men of Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, what, was, what, if, what are these things about which Luke speaks. So what was the substance of Paul's preaching when he went to the synagogue? He wasn't preaching from the book of Romans. He wasn't preaching from the book of Revelation. What was he preaching from? The Old Testament. Isaiah and other places where he would show them from their own scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus fulfilled everything that the Old Testament, that all that Moses and the law and the prophets said, Paul said, This is the one you've been waiting on. And Luke tells us the men of Berea were more noble than the Thessalonians. But here's where our bias comes in. Our our post-enlightenment individualistic bias comes in. Our mind immediately goes to a picture of individual Christians taking their Bible and heading off somewhere and turning through the papers. What was the problem with that? They didn't have Bibles. Very, very few, and only the very wealthy, would have even had a portion of the scriptures. In fact, most synagogues did not, have, did not have a full Old Testament canon. Manuscripts were exceedingly expensive. But there's another problem with that. The Hebrew mind would have never conceived of that, of, of going off individually and searching the scriptures. Would have never conceived of that. So what was the nobility about which Luke speaks then? It was a nobility of the congregation, of the whole synagogue, reasoning together, wrestling through what Paul had preached, wrestling together over the text of the scriptures and saying, we agree with this. Now, individual minds either received it or rejected it. But as a whole, the congregation, the synagogue at Thessalonica, rejected the message. 
And as a whole, obviously with exceptions, the synagogue at Berea said, we see this as truth. We see what he's saying conforms to the scriptures that we have. But that reveals even the way that we backwards interpret, interpret, sorry to say interpretate, interpret that event reveals, doesn't it, something about the way we think. By default, we think in a very individualistic way. So that post-enlightenment individualism is one of, and it's a, it's, a, it's a strong headwind against the idea of confessions. Because what we want to believe is that I can come to the truth on my own. I don't need anything or anyone outside of myself. If me and my Bible is more than enough, I don't need the input of other, other believers. And I certainly don't need the input of other believers who are dead. There's a second one. And by the way, this is not, I'm not intending to be exhaustive. There are other um, cultural headwinds against confessions and creeds. But, I, but I'm wanting to give what I think are some of the more prominent ones. Uh, you, you may come to a different opinion on that, and that's, that's, that's perfectly fine. Uh, or you may come up with other ones that I've, I've not thought about. The second one is mysticism. Mysticism. Anybody want to take a stab at what, what, what I mean by mysticism? Or could give me a, a, a working definition. You want to take Matthew? Secret knowledge, that's, that's key. Secret knowledge has to be revealed, but how is it revealed? Yeah, but some through immediate, some direct interaction with something transcend, transcendent, whether it's the universe of Buddhism or whether it is uh, in, in the repackaged form of Christianity, the charismatic, where you have a direct, immediate relationship with the Spirit of God and he tells you things. That's mysticism. Here's just a dictionary. This is just a secular dictionary. It says, belief in direct experience of transcendent reality or God, especially by means of contemplation and asceticism instead of rational thought. And we could add instead of rational thought or instead of the letter. It's what we intuit. It's what we perceive. It's what we think. Some will say what we receive from the Spirit of God without the mediation of a written document. The scriptures are otherwise. Uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, who was a very prominent late 18th century, early 19th century German theologian, he was initially, I think, uh, he came, or I should say, he came from a Reformed background. He's in no way, shape, or form Reformed, but he came from a Reformed background. And he was, he was a German theologian and philosopher. He was, was often, he's now known in many cases as the father of modern liberal theology, but he had a tremendous, tremendous influence, and he, is, he was seeking to blend these enlightenment principles of the autonomous self with traditional Protestant orthodoxy. Listen to what he says. Religion does not strive to bring those who believe and feel under a single belief and a single feeling. It strives, to be sure, to open the eyes of those who are not yet capable of intuiting the universe. For everyone who sees becomes a new priest, a new mediator, a new mouthpiece. But for just this reason, religion avoids with aversion the barren uniformity 
that would again destroy the divine abundance. Listen to some things that he has that he's saying. Religion does not strive to bring those who believe and feel under a single belief. Is that consistent with the scriptures? What about the faith once delivered to the saints? That there is a uniformity of belief. It strives to be sure to open the eyes of those who are not yet, or no, he's under, under a single belief and a single feeling. So you see, it's moving away now from rational thought. It strives to be sure to open the eyes of those who are not yet capable of reading the sacred text. That's not what he says. It opens the eyes of those who are not yet capable of intuiting the universe. See, this is mysticism. For everyone who sees is a new priest, a new mediator, a new mouthpiece, but based on what they intuit, what they feel. But for just this reason, it avoids with aversion the barren uniformity that would again destroy the divine abundance. So if we are unified and say, thus saith the Lord, and we we can all give our hearty amen to that, he says that undoes the divine abundance. So there are a number of presuppositions involved here. We could could spend the rest of the the hour just unpacking that, and I I don't want to do that, but I want you to just see mysticism has, has become a dominant reality in our culture. The, the, have you ever heard the word epistemology? Epistemology just simply is the science of knowing. How do we know what we know? And for a young child, how do they know what they know? Well, in some ways, it's because they're able to touch and, and feel their environment. They learn things that are hot or cold. They also learn that mommy says no and daddy says this. And, and so they learn by instruction. So their epistemology, we've got three little granddaughters, we're seeing this in real time. Their epistemology is basically what they're told and what they're taught and what they observe and touch and, and can and taste. They do a lot of tasting these days. Potted soil and everything else. <clears throat> but that's how they're, they're learning. Well, when it comes to the things of God, what is our epistemology? It, scriptures, we confess, is the only certain, sufficient, and infallible guide. doesn't mean that we don't learn other things. Paul says that the attributes of God are plain, even to the pagan mind, but they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. So we, we can look at the world around us and see that manifestly there's a God. There, there, there is a designer. There is order all around us. There is a designer, and men suppress that truth in unrighteousness. But the dominant, I would say even the dominant hermeneutic, the, or the dominant epistemology in evangelicalism is mysticism. It's what do you feel. It's what do you intuit. And, and, and the scriptures are a part of that, but it's even then, it's what do I feel from the scriptures? What's my emotional response? And it's not that the, the, the language itself is what's true, it's my response to what I read is what's true. Does this make sense? Subjective, okay? Hmm? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Asbury uh, Revival. So, post-enlightenment individualism and populism, mysticism as the dominant epistemology. A third feature of the cultural case against confessions is suspicion of authority and historic institutions. Now, you can see there's an overlap with that and mysticism because those both can't be true. 
unless you're a pure postmodernist, as both can't be true, right? You, you can't rely on intuitive feelings, emotions, and subjective responses to various impulses or in, in, uh, inputs and also subject yourself to a written standard that was transmitted and received. Those, those are compatible. So there's a suspicion of, of, of authority. There's a suspicion of historic institutions. Now, think about this, and I think this has been in large measure driven. I, I am proud to be a, a, an American citizen. I, I praise God that I was born here and not in other places. But we also have to be honest about the, the, the philosophies and the weaknesses of the philosophies that undergird the American institution, the American government. And, and one of those is a hyper-individualism, a, a, a populism. And as the United States became sort of the dominant strand or represented a dominant strand of Christianity, and the United States was the beginning of the modern missionary movement, so what, guess what got exported along with the gospel all around the world was Western individualism, Western populism, and at an increasing, an increasing rate, a uniquely American form of mysticism. You know, the fastest growing expression of, of Protestantism in the, in, the, in the world is Pentecostalism, which is mysticism. So I think there's, a, there's a, an accompanying influence of, of the United States on the rest of the world, including its export of American Christianity. There's a fourth cultural uh, headwind or, or cultural attribute that, that sort of predisposes us against confessionalism, and it's a suspicion of history and, and a, a devaluing of the usefulness of history to guide us today. We, we think uh, we tend to reject history almost automatically as, as not being useful to our modern lives. I mean, what did these backwards people who didn't even have electricity or Twitter or indoor plumbing, what do they know about theology? I mean, surely we have surpassed them. We've surpassed them in all these other areas. Surely we've surpassed them in things of, of doctrine and theology, right? And we, we should have assumed that. There's no question. Yeah, there's no question. Uh, the question was, was is, is this uh, a byproduct or related to just evolutionary thinking in general, that we're, that as a, as a species, to use the language, we're, we're constantly evolving and getting better. Well, certainly that's, that's the case. So there's a, defi- there's, a, there's a default elevation of things that are contemporary and modern, and there's a default rejection of things that are old, antiquated. Again, that's just one of our presuppositions. And, and that may, and, and for you personally, that may be on a, a lower scale, but honesty requires us to say, well, but, but what are those ways in which I tend to reject uh, the old, uh, the, the ancient? As Jeremiah said, do not leave, do not move those ancient landmarks. In which ways am I prone to doing that? And lastly, and again, this is not an exhaustive list, 
But we, it also reveals to us, or we have to confront, that we have a wrong view of Scripture sometimes. And there were those in the early to mid-19th century who, who intentionally and willfully taught a wrong view of Scripture, and particularly the aspect of the Scripture's perspicuity. Anybody know what the doctrine of perspicuity means? You heard that word? It, it's one of those theological words. That, why didn't you choose someone that's, that's, that's important? It just means the clarity of Scripture. The doctrine of perspicuity is the doctrine of the Scripture's clarity. And the uh, <clears throat> Alexander Campbell and another man, first name I can't, escapes me at the moment, Stone, were the forerunners of the Campbellites, which became the disciples of Christ, the churches of Christ. And their mantra was no creed but the Bible. And one of the things that they taught was that you did not need any indwelling spirit. You did not need divine inspiration or divine help to read the scriptures. You could read the scriptures just as you would any other book. That the meaning was so plain that you could give a Bible to 100 people, assign them a text, give them sufficient time to study it, and they would all come to the same rational conclusions. Again, enlightenment thinking, the exaltation of the rational and the individual, and the denigration of those things that had come before. So you did not need any other help. In fact, they said you ought to come to the Bible. Every time you read it, you should come to a text as if you've never read it before, as if no man had ever read it before. So it was a wrong view of Scripture. It's a wrong view of the perspicuity, of the clarity of Scripture. We do believe the Bible is clear. We qualify that with not every passage is equally plain. Right? And, and we can confirm that from the Scriptures. Doesn't Peter say? Some of the things our brother Paul says are hard to understand. Some things are immediately clear. That sure, a babe in the faith could understand that. But other things are, are, are complex. They're difficult doctrines. They require significant study. And, and we have to, one passage may seem clear enough until we compare that to all of the Scriptures and realize, that doesn't mean what I think it meant. And so we have a wrong view. We can have a wrong view of the, of the perspicuity, of the clarity of the Scriptures. And we think we don't need any other helps. We just need the plain, bare text. Keith Madison, or Keith Matheson, is a Presbyterian theologian, and he, he used the term, that's where I first read it was with him, I don't think he coined the term, but he used the term solo scriptura. The, one of the Reformation or the hallmarks of the Reformation was sola, scripture, the scriptures alone. And he used the word solo, scripture, scriptures all by yourself, or nuda, scriptura, the bare scriptures, without any context, without historical context, without hermeneutical context. So that's, that's in, in, in short order, the, the, the cultural case, the cultural headwinds against confessionalism. And I think it's good for us, before we embark on a study of our confession, to sort of lay some of those things on the table so that we can see, I mean, okay, to what degree am I guilty of some of these things? Uh, in what ways am I still influenced by that? Uh, Paul warned the Roman church in Romans 12, says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And Paul's not, I've said this before, Paul's not imagining a hypothetical situation in which the unguarded Christian could, might, maybe, sort of, kind of, could be conformed to the world. He's saying, this is our default position. This is where we begin. We're conformed to the world. 
and we need the work of the Word through the Spirit in order to transform us. So some of these cultural... Uh, we, we have this cultural mud on our shoes even as we walk in here this morning. And some may have not just mud on their shoes, you may have it all the way up to your neck. <clears throat> so let's think also about the scriptural case. Turn with me to Exodus, book of Exodus. And again, this is not designed at all to be exhaustive. I, want you to get, I just want you to have a, a taste of this. Both under the Old Covenant and the New, God expected his people to rehearse what he had told them. He expected them not only to hear it, but to rehearse it so that it would not be forgotten and so that it could be transmitted accurately and intact to the next generation. So in Exodus chapter 13, in verse 14, And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? Let's talk about the Passover. What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now, he doesn't say, notice something, when your son asks you, so basically, you know, you're, you're observing this Passover feast, and it's kind of strange. Dad's eating with a staff in his hand, his sandals are fastened. We had to eat these bitter herbs, and this, they're really particular about the way we sacrifice this lamb, and maybe because our family's small, we're sharing with a neighbor in this, and, and when your son asks you, Dad, what's this about? Why do we do this? I don't even like these herbs. He doesn't say, go tell your son to read those, what, seven or eight chapters in the scroll that describes all these events. He says, no, this is what you tell him. And it's condensed into a confession of faith. You tell him, this is what you tell your son. And you summarize these things for him. We'll go over to Deuteronomy. While we're here in the Pentateuch, go over to Deuteronomy. This is probably the most famous of all, Deuteronomy 6. Verse 3, hear, hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. This is the statutes, the rules, the commandments. That it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your this is known as the Hebrew Shema. This was the most fundamental and basic confession of faith among the Hebrews. But it doesn't say, go back and read all that Moses wrote about the nature of our God, about his commands. Confess this summary of it. So, And we could point to many more examples, but under the Old Covenant, the people of God were trained to have a ready answer. In fact, it's very similar to what Peter would later say, that bless the Lord as, or honor the Lord as holy in your hearts, always being ready to give a defense, an apology for the reason, for the hope that is within you. The Jews were commanded in a very similar way. Have this ready. When your son asks you, 
You don't have to go, well, you know, how do I explain this? Here's the ready answer. It's already written down for you. Memorize this. You have the, the right answer. Now, you can expand upon that, but start with that. Even the four-year-old in your home can readily understand this. Now, as we move to the New Covenant, we see this, this kind of language throughout the Scriptures. Uh, in fact, there's going to be some overlap between the, the Sunday school lesson today and, and the sermon today. And I'll, I'll kind of overlap in some of the passages that I address. But throughout the New Testament, we find repeated evidence for this sort of, of confession of faith. But we find it frequently and especially in the pastoral epistles, which, which makes sense. Paul's writing to, 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 to young protégés and training them how to appoint elders, how to order churches, and how to, how to order and establish and plant new churches. And these are the things that are most important. So Paul says, for example, and you don't have to turn here, just, just listen to kind of the succession of these things. In 1 Timothy 1, in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now Paul will use that phrase, these faithful sayings. If you read in, in the uh, pastoral epistles in particular, when you read through commentaries, often the, the, the commentator will highlight what are known as these faithful sayings of Paul. And what Paul is, is saying is, these are things that are already sort of uh, in, in new form, or in infant form, these are creedal formulations. Creed, by the way, just means I believe. Credo is the Latin word for I believe. And so Paul is saying, this is a faithful saying. Paul's not the first to say this. He's repeating something that has be become common in the church. So he says, this is a trustworthy and deserve, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Verse 73, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. We, we spent a couple of weeks with that passage in, in the sermon. First Timothy 4, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is a creedal formulation within the inspired writ of the New Testament. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, for by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul not only gives a creedal formulation here, he repeats that and he says, you need to insist on this. Timothy, you need to treat this as authoritative. It is necessary for you to believe and to obey and for all under your care to believe these things and to obey them. And finally, in Jude, in Jude 3, Beloved, 
Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, much more could be said and perhaps ought to be said about this, but I want you to see that, that the idea of a confession of faith isn't some foreign concept that, that just exists somewhere outside of the Scriptures or on top of the Scriptures, but actually comes from the Scriptures. That the Christians of beginning the first century, it, it, before the, the New Testament was even written down, the, the Christians were already beginning to confess what they believed. And Paul was able to quote many of these such things. Lastly, let's, let's consider briefly some of the benefits, and we'll expand on these as we work through the study. But let's think about some, some benefits to a church. Benefits to a local church for subscribing a confession of faith. One, we've seen already from particularly the Old Covenant, it makes it very, very explicit. It's useful, it's a useful tool for passing on the faith, for keeping it intact. Because if, if you have already formulated your doctrines carefully and, and in summary form, it makes it much more accurate to pass those things along to the next generation. So it's a useful tool. In, in any, uh, any educational endeavor, whether you're at the collegiate level or a, a preschool, elementary school level, you use different teaching tools. We, we, with young children, often it's music, right? You, you, that's how they learn their alphabet, is they sing it. And so there are pedagogical tools, teaching tools. A confession of faith is, is one such teaching tool that the Scriptures themselves commend to God's people. In times to come, when your son asks you about the Passover, you don't say, go read all the documentation in the whole scroll about the Passover. He needs to read that, no doubt, but here, give him the summary. Give him what he ought to know about the Passover, those things that are most important about the Passover, about the nature of God and his mercy towards his people that is shown in that Passover ordinance. So it's a useful tool. It also is, is a, a, a tool, an instrument, by which God creates a greater unity within a local church. If we take the presupposition that all we need to know is, is Jesus, and the rest, everything else, all the other doctrinal things are potentially divisive. We don't need to focus on those. We need to focus on just on the, the central features of our, of our faith. We can pretty much guarantee we're going to be divided on a lot of other things. There will be no unity, or it will be very hard. But if we have a, a large body of settled doctrine and, and have it written down where people can study it themselves, and see for themselves where this comes from, the Scriptures, where this lines up with the Scriptures. We actually have a greater possibility, in fact, a greater likelihood, of finding unity together according to the Scriptures. But also, not only within a local church do we have a greater capacity for unity, but we have a greater capacity for unity within the church Catholic. Even with other churches with whom we disagree, we have a greater possibility of unity. Why is that? Because we don't have to be scared of one another. We don't have to be suspicious. So let's just say, for, just for example, one of our closest theological cousins are Reformed Presbyterians. And we very likely would not plant a church together because we do have important differences. 
but if you put their confession of faith and our confession of faith side by side, I don't know, 90, 95% of it is exactly the same. So we can express a great deal of unity, and we don't have to be suspicious of our brother or our sister because we know exactly where the differences are. They've already been articulated. They've been spelled out. We understand their scriptural arguments. They understand ours. We can disagree about those things and still celebrate the great amount of unity we do have with one another. So it actually helps us promote the right kind of ecumenism, the right kind of Catholicity, because we can focus instead upon the things on which we are unified rather than the things upon which we are in disagreement. So greater unity among other churches. It's also useful as a, as a hedge, a guard against error. And I'll address this more in, in the sermon today with respect to an elder's confession of faith. But it, a confession of faith is a great guard for us as a church. It's a great help to us in guarding against error. Because every member has access to a summary form of what we believe. And so whether it's coming from the pulpit or whether it's coming in a casual conversation over the lunch table, you will have in your own, I mean, potentially even in your hip pocket literally, but certainly figuratively, you will have some what Spurgeon called a small compass of our faith, a small summary of that faith by which you can guard against significant errors. And then, and again, I'll evaluate, I'll, I'll update or expand upon this more in the sermon, but it's a means of us evaluating teachers within the church. Crucially and critically, it's a way for us objectively to evaluate whether it's your current pastor and evaluate what, what I was what he's teaching true. Is this consistent with the scriptures? Or a, a guest preacher or a, a candidate for pastor elder at our church, or even in the context of a Sunday school lesson or any other thing, you have in your own hand, your own ability to say objectively, it's not just my interpretation of Scripture. This is what we've all agreed upon as a church. And so we can say, we can apply in the right kind of way in Titus chapter 3. In verse 10, or verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. For as, a, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, having no, have nothing more to do with, with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. In the beginning of that passage, as a person who stirs up division... The Greek word there is heretikos. I don't have to tell you what English word comes from that, do I? See, a heretic is one who leaves the truth, the one who departs from it. So the one who, biblically, the one who is divisive is not the one who stands for sound doctrine, who stands upon the scriptures, who stands according to historic Christian orthodoxy. That one is not divisive. Who's the divisive one? The one who departs from that is... is the one who is the divisive person. And having been warned once and then twice, this is not someone who just doesn't understand it or needs to be taught more. This is the one who rejects it. Have nothing more to do with that person. They are warped and sinful, self-condemned. So it is, it is a, a helpful means for us as a church of, of guarding ourselves against error, not only internally, 
uh, with respect to our own teachers and, and, and our, our own pastors and our own just private conversations within the body of Christ, but also as a hard guard against error out there. Uh, I mean, we in our day, the, the possibility of having uh, heresy coming at us literally at light speed is immense, isn't it? The, the ability to get online and listen, to go on to YouTube or Sermon Audio or and even Sermon Audio, who's a, it's a much more conservative platform. There's a lot of error there. And you go to YouTube, especially if you turn on something like TBN or, you know, who knows what else, there's all kinds of, it's the Wild West. And, and a, a confession of faith helps guard us both individually and, and corporately against error. So that is in some small measure uh, an argument in favor of confessionalism, helping us to understand what are some of the things that we, just, just by the culture in which we, the cultural pond in which we swim, what are some things that, that sort of predispose us, perhaps, against confessionalism? Then understanding that the scriptures are not something that are, in, are, are the, the confessions are not something that are on top of or instead of or in place of the scriptures, but actually something that are commended to us in the scriptures. And finally, to, to understand what some of the advantages are. As, as the confession is an instrument, it's a tool. Uh, it, it is, in any, in any trade, in any enterprise, you have tools. Uh, whether you're a software engineer or a carpenter, a plumber, electrician, an in, uh, a, a vocalist, a musician, you have tools. A confession is a tool. It's an instrument. It can be used badly, or it can use, be used for its intended purpose and, and productively. So if it's used productively, if it's used for its intended purposes, some of those advantages are to prevent error, to help us to pass on our faith once delivered to the saints, to pass on that good deposit intact, uh, to help us promote unity, both within this local church and among other local churches. We'll close there. We've got about 10 minutes um, to our worship service. Let's, let's pray and give ourselves to the grace of God. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have so richly blessed us in Christ. We thank you for the work of your spirit in, in every generation, and we pray that you will make us wise according to the scriptures, that your spirit will be a great help to us to discern the truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. Will you bless us, give us the very the gift and the grace of unity together. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.